Well, the last time we were together, we began exploring the heart and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ with regard to marriage. We're starting several weeks about marriage because that's where we are in this gospel. And we saw that the Lord roots his affirmation of marriage in the creation account. In the beginning, God created all things of which is included humanity. And we read, I'm just going to read these verses for your uh, remembrance here. In Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then the Lord divides this up and says, male and female, he created them. So Jesus quotes this verse in order to demonstrate that marriage finds its true origins in the simple fact that God created men and women to go together in a close, personal, intimate union. This is God's design, one man and one woman. However, Genesis 2 further elaborates more on this, and we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed the flesh at that place And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Genesis 2.18 provides the basis for what J. Adams, the biblical scholar, uh, refers to as the covenant of companionship. Now we see that God essentially solves Adam's problem of loneliness by creating a wife for him, one who will be helpful and suitable, a companion for him. And then in the first marriage ceremony, we see this here even typified, where the father, God the father, brings the woman to the man in verse 22. Adam professes his acceptance of her in verse 23. And the Bible pronounces them joined in verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the implication is so does the woman as well. And they shall be joined together and become one flesh. They are now married. They are together. This is the the basis and the illustration of the one flesh marital union. A husband is joined or glued to his wife and they are united into one entity that is meant to endure until death. As history went on, of course, God's people began to formalize this institution, going so far as drafting stipulations to form a marriage covenant derived from Scripture. These stipulations were always either written down or recited at the marriage ceremony. Certain things were imperative there. Sexual faithfulness was always a given. Along with fidelity, there was always the expectation of providing care for one another. One example comes to us in Exodus 21.10. It mandates that a husband is to provide his wife for food, her clothing, and provide her with conjugal rights. Even in our westernized version of the marriage contract, it reflects those values. 
And how many husbands, even in this room, have pledged to their own wives in their marriage ceremony, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold. You don't want to recite this with me? Come on now. To have and to hold from this day forward, right? We know this from better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. We, I mean, we can do that from memory rote, but isn't that essentially the basis of all of this? While it's not as specific as the biblical prescriptions in terms of detail, we understand inherently that there is a, a concept of vowing faithfulness to our spouse for the rest of our lives. This is God's design. One man, one woman, for life, together in a loving union. However, even though marriage is as old as creation, we must also acknowledge that marital strife is as old as the fall. Once sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, it began corrupting and destroying everything it touched, including marriage. And so the question for us to consider then is, what happens when sin fractures and decimates the marriage? What happens when the covenant is broken? Well, thankfully, the Lord Jesus has an answer for us. And so turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 19. That's where we're we're working today. We've been in Matthew. I did the math. We've been there since uh, December of 2019. We're going to continue to go just verse by verse to try to give us a better understanding of what the whole gospel teaches. We want to really nail down what is Jesus' teaching for us in the gospel of Matthew. And so by God's providence and design, here we are in Matthew 19. Matthew 19 really opens up with Jesus' journey to go south from where he is toward Jerusalem. And as he's making his way south from the region of Galilee, a large crowd begins to follow him. And it was in the midst of this crowd of people that his opponents, the Pharisees, would attempt to spring their trap on him and discredit him in front of all the people who were watching. And so we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. As we discussed last time, the issue of divorce, it was a hot-button issue in Jesus' day, and frankly, it's been a hot-button issue ever since. It's always a hot-button issue. It always, anything that touches our personal, our identity, and our relationships, and our home life, and our finances, and anything personal, we get pretty hot around the collar when we talk about it. Part of the reason it has to do with the contentious theological debate that was going on in the, between the Jewish schools over the interpretation of this Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 24.1. The scholars were fighting in Jesus' day over the interpretation pertaining to divorce. 
But the Pharisees that come to Jesus, they're not looking for any of his help. They don't want his help to solve the debate. Rather, they're trying to entrap him and discredit him in the eyes of all the people. And so they begin by posing the question in verse 3. And it's framed very carefully, very, very uh, discreetly. Is it lawful, you appeal to the law, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The basis of the question, again, has to do with their, the rabbi's interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, which allows a Jewish man to divorce his wife as long as he finds a cause of indecency in her. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes here. Now, the more conservative school, the school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, maintained that the cause of indecency refers specifically to some kind of sexual immorality, whether it was uh, public uh, nudity or whether it was some kind of uh, uh, indiscretion. We don't think it was necessarily adultery because there were different rules for adultery, but some kind of sexual indecency. But the more progressive school, the school of Hillel, rendered the verse this way, a cause or some indecency. In other words, they argued that you could divorce your wife for any viable cause, any cause that would be unfavorable in the eyes of the husband. And so the Pharisees, they posed the question to Jesus, Jesus, what do you think about all this? Now, they know that he doesn't support any cause divorce, what we would call today no-fault divorce. You don't have to prove your grounds. You just go to the courts and you say, well, irre- irreconcilable differences. And they go, all right, and they just let you off. That's, so this is what they're talking about. Any cause at all, no fault. And they want him to admit in front of the eyes of all the people around him, this large crowd, that he does not hold to this position so they can fire back with their proof text and make it seem like he's disagreeing with Scripture. Again, they're trying to entrap him in this debate. But does Jesus fall into the trap? Not at all. Because instead of answering their question about divorce, he's going to argue for the Bible's teaching on marriage. Look at these verses again with me. And we covered these. If you missed this last week, I would encourage you to go back because we spent a lot more time. I'm just doing sort of an overview to catch us up to speed before plunging us into the next couple verses. But Jesus answered and said to to the rabbis, to the Pharisees, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. He says, have you not read these verses? Don't you know that the creation account is what sets up this entire marriage covenant? He says, therefore, in verse 6, there are no longer two but one flesh. And then he pronounces here, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So that's his answer. To the divorce question, we noted earlier that Jesus, he roots the marriage concept in the creation account, citing Genesis 1.27, and he presents God's true design for marriage to be a lifelong, one flesh union. That's his design. Rather than focus on the provisions for divorce, Jesus emphasizes the faithfulness of marriage. He says, I'm not going to argue with you on your terms, because you're missing the point. If you came here to debate me on divorce, you're totally misunderstanding what the Bible has to say about all of this stuff. He concludes with the exhortation, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, don't seek divorce. And I made the statement last week, and I hold to it again this week. Only people who are hardened in their hearts desire divorce. 
Nobody who wants to be faithful to God desires to leave their spouse. That's usually a result of something that happens in the marriage, but no one who loves the Lord and loves their spouse wants to get divorced. Now, the Lord did not exactly answer the way that they had hoped, but they were still seeking an opportunity to ensnare him. After all, he, he certainly seems to as though he's shutting the door on divorce, and so they asked the question, verse 7. After all this, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They think they have him now, because it looks like he's arguing against the Bible. At this point, they think he's trapped. They think they've caught him disagreeing with Scripture, disagreeing with Moses. But what exactly do they think that they have him on? Where does the Bible command divorce? Turn over in your copy of Scripture to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, the first five books, the fifth book of the Bible. This is what's known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books written by Moses. Chapters... 23, 24, and 25, this is the section in the law where it contains certain protections for those in Israel who are weak. These are protections for the weak, okay? If you were to categorize these three chapters. This section contains various protections, such as, and I'm just going to give you a couple of samples of what these teach here, not charging inflated interest to other people, allowing hungry people to graze in your fields when they need food, Uh, fairness in business dealings, not oppressing a poor servant, caring for widows and orphans, being gracious toward travelers and sojourners in your land, not engaging in excessive punishment, and so on and so forth. So those are just some examples of the kinds of things that are being talked about in Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25. And chapter 24 begins by making a provision for women of divorce. Now, I want to be very clear at the outset of this. The context includes the fact that someone has committed a sexual or a sinful transgression, but the law regulates divorce so that things don't get further out of hand. And, we, and just as, as an aside here, many times in the Bible, you don't see the Lord God rooting out institutions. The Lord does not up, upend a lot of social constructions Many times the Lord will regulate society so that it can function. And I was thinking about this as we were reading through Colossians chapter 3 when we talk about regulations for masters and slaves. We don't have slavery anymore. That institution is gone in this country. We do have relationships between workers and bosses and things like that. But the goal is to regulate the constructs that we're currently living in. So that's what's being done here. The Lord is regulating this fact that divorce is taking place. This is a regulation. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is the law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from this house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, her former husband who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. 
for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, at first glance, this seems a little bit complicated, but I assure you it's really not. The Hebrew man in this scenario here, and it's a hypothetical, by the way, a Hebrew man here discovers that his wife has committed some measure of indecency. Again, whether it's immodesty or sexual immorality or lewdness or something like that, and he finds grounds in the law to divorce her. He divorces her. He puts a certificate of divorce into her hand and sends her away. He divorces her, and then she leaves his house and then marries another man. She, ha- she gets remarried to another man. The scenario then progresses. If that second husband then divorces her, or if he dies, the first husband that she was married to originally is not allowed to go back and reclaim her as his wife again. Okay? What's the principle here? The principle is this. The certificate of divorce functionally severs the marriage in the eyes of the court, and allows the wife to pursue another husband. And we know that it severs because then she's not permitted to go back. The man can't go and say, well, she was my wife first, and bring her back under that original marriage covenant. Well, how is this mercy for the weak? Because again, the context is mercy for the weak. In essence, what this is doing is it's protecting the wife so that she can remarry even if she has sinned against her first husband. Because again, the occasion is that she's done something wrong, at least in his eyes. Because without the certificate of divorce, the woman would have no options. If he said, okay, you know what, you've sinned against me and I'm, you're gone here. If she didn't have a certificate of divorce that was acknowledged by the court, she'd have no options. Because here's the thing, if she pursued another relationship, she'd be guilty of adultery. And Deuteronomy 22 says that the punishment for adultery is death of both people who commit adultery. So in that situation, she has no options. And remember, in the culture here, without the marriage covenant, many times these wives were left on their own. There was no protection physically, no protection, no no financial provision for them. There was no headship. There's nothing. They didn't have a house. They had nothing. So her Hope for her future was to go and find another husband who she could go and build another life with. And so if she tried to do this again without the certificate, she'd not be allowed to. But the provision in Deuteronomy 24 makes it possible for her to pick up the pieces and move on even if a transgression has occurred. Do you see that? This is actually a mercy of God to provide for this woman. Go back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Even though that's the context of protections for the weak and providing for this woman uh, uh, some kind of mercy here, the Pharisees are using Deuteronomy 24.1 and really only a phrase out of that verse as a proof text to justify divorce for any cause. Now, even just a, a very cursory look at that passage reveals to us in the context that's really not what that passage is about, but that's what they're using to justify any cause divorce. If I can find any cause of indecency at all, then I can divorce my wife. Furthermore, the Pharisees say this. In the text, they say that Moses commanded divorce. He commanded divorce. In fact, this is very interesting. Some early Jewish teachers maintain that adultery, listen to this, necessitated divorce. 
because the marriage bed had been defiled. And so to keep on going in that marriage, you would then defile yourself. So some rabbis taught that if adultery was, was occurring, that you had to divorce, okay? How does Jesus respond to that? Look at verse 8. Because the question is, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Notice the correction of that word. The Pharisees maintain that Moses commanded them to divorce their wives. But Jesus corrects it and says, no, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But the idea being here that God didn't create man and woman in his image, pair them up together, and then command them to divorce. Not only does it make no sense at all whatsoever, but that is ripping apart the one flesh union that God has created, who God has joined together, let no man separate, right? In fact, in the creation account, divorce isn't even considered You don't even find the notion of divorce for several books of the Bible later. The desire and the design from God is that that marriage is supposed to work. And I said this last time, God desires for all of your marriages to work. He wants your marriage to be good and to be fruitful and to be faithful. He wants your marriages to be loving. He wants your marriages to be godly. But this is why Jesus tells them from the beginning it has not been this way. Divorce came much later after the fall. And it came as a provision of mercy. In fact, God opposes divorce. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. But then the question persists. Why then does God allow it? That's the Pharisees' question. Why does he allow it then? Why is it even in the Bible if he doesn't want us to do it? Jesus answers. Because of the hardness of your heart. Divorce is always the result of spiritual hardness of heart. And while, and I want to make this very clear, divorce itself is not inherently sinful. I'll say that again because this has to be corrected. Many people in the church believe wrongly about this, I think. That divorce itself, the fact that divorce has taken place itself is not inherently sinful, but it is always the result of sin. Either the sin of the husband, or the sin of the wife, or the sin of both. It always is the result of sin. But there can be innocent parties in a divorce, which is, again, why it is not itself inherently sinful. See, marriage is a covenantal bond. It is a blessed, one-flesh union. It is two hearts beating as one. But divorce rips that apart. And the Greek word that's used in this passage in verses 7, 8, and 9 is apoluo, which literally means to send away or to release or set free or dismiss. And so the imagery here is when you divorce your spouse, you are effectively severing a part of your body and then sending it away from you. That's what divorce is. You are driving away the one whom you promised to love and serve until death. And even though the roles in marriage are different for husbands and wives, we both have our jobs, our respective jobs in the marriage, but the basic understanding is that we are to love each other with a Christ-like love. We are to give to one another. We are to serve one another in different ways. 
It is a mutual pulling together, an equally yoked pulling together toward Christ-likeness in unity, in love, in a marital one-flesh bond. However, sometimes there's no other choice. At one point in Israel's history, God gave her a certificate of divorce. Remember last time we talked about God regarding the relationship between himself and his people in a way that is similar to the marital relationship. That picture of marriage reflects the divine relationship between Christ and his church. That's from Ephesians chapter 5. But the metaphor is carried even earlier into the Old Testament. And for years, God had been warning his people against chasing after false gods and committing spiritual adultery. And after years of commanding and pleading and showing mercy and provision and bearing with them, finally the Lord announces to the people of Judah, the tribes in the north, who are themselves being unfaithful at that point, he tells Judah that he had already divorced Israel. We read in Jeremiah 3.8, the Lord says, I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. And when this occurs, Israel is delivered over to the Assyrians and God removes his protection and his provision for them. Why? Is it because God did something wrong? No. It was because of their repeated sinfulness. It was because of their hardness of heart. And so again, divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. Otherwise, if it were, God himself would be guilty. And may it never be. Rather, it is always sin that causes divorce. But why? Why did Jesus tell the Pharisees that Moses granted divorce because of their hardness of heart? After all, the example in Deuteronomy 24 indicates in that context that it was actually a wife who was guilty of immorality. So why does he then pin it back on the Pharisees in that context? Well, I believe he says what he says for two reasons, at least two reasons. First of all, because Jesus knew that the Pharisees, they weren't divorcing their wives for legitimate reasons. They were doing it for any cause, for losing their looks, getting too old, burning dinner, having a bad attitude, getting angry at the mother-in-law, whatever those silly reasons were we talked about last time. Israel's history is littered with pieces of paper, divorce decrees, outlining just absolutely insane reasons for divorcing their spouse. And that was the problem, is that it was their sinfulness that was occasioning the divorces. And the certificate of divorce that was given to the wife was God's merciful provision to the wife so that she could go and hopefully remarry a godly man. But what they were trying to do is they were just serializing and legitimizing their own adultery. As long as I give her the certificate of divorce, I can go find somebody else, and that'll be great for me. That was their reason. But there's a second reason I believe that he says what he says. Because here's the thing. Even if the wife, in that context, had been guilty of some kind of indecency, they could have extended forgiveness. They weren't required to divorce their wife. After all, Hosea's wife commits adultery. She actually becomes a harlot, and he still takes her back. He forgives. Didn't we just spend like two months on forgiveness and repentance and restoration and reconciliation? It's the providence of God that we're talking about marriage now, isn't it? 
If that's good enough for church discipline, it's certainly good enough for your marriage, isn't it? So the goal here is not to harden your heart. Your spouse's sinfulness does not demand that you divorce them. And oh, so many people have just decided, I don't like them anymore. I don't want to try anymore. They made a mistake. We're done. And I don't think that God is pleased with all the divorces in this country. Certainly not, but even within the church. I really don't. You can always forgive. In fact, God would rather you forgive. If there's any way that you can forgive a transgression and be restored, my goodness, that's better. It's way, way better. But the Pharisees had no capacity for forgiveness, which is why Jesus cites their hardness of heart as to why divorce and remarriage were mercifully granted to their wives. The reason their certificate even exists, he tells them, is because you guys are wrong. And if you don't have a certificate of divorce for your wife, you are consigning your wife to the status of a harlot with no options except to die. And so, in essence, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm thankful Deuteronomy 24 is there to save these women from you. Because without it, they'd be dead. I often hear criticism that God is too tough on women in the Bible. I don't agree at all. There are so many provisions to protect and care for women, especially in the cultural context of a society that had no regard for women. Do, do research into the, to the old ways, to the history of how women are treated through the course of antiquity, and it's not good. The Bible provides and brings about provisions and protections in a way that is unprecedented through the course of history. No, God desires to protect those who are weak, who need help. How many verses about widows and orphans do we see in the Bible? No, God is incredibly kind and incredibly merciful to people. But again, God hates divorce. He really hates it. Why? Because of what it does to the marriage relationship? Because of what it does to you personally and spiritually when you lose your one flesh union? Because of what it does to your children? What it does to your life and your legacy? What it does to the fabric of society? God hates divorce, but he loves forgiveness, forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. We are called to love our spouses, to seek their good, to care for them, to remain with them through thick and thin till death do us part. But what about divorce? What about it? Verse 9, Jesus says, in regards to the condition of the hardness of heart, that Moses gives them the certificate of divorce. He says, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, at this point, Jesus is coming full circle to answer the question that was posed to him in verse 3. Again, the question in verse 3, the question he's answering, this is really important, the reason he's given the answer is because of the nature of this specific question. Their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He says, no, it's not. And he begins his response with this, and I say to you, that's a statement of authority. Because here's the thing, it's not about what Rabbi Shammai says. It's not about what Rabbi Hillel says. It's about what does the Lord say? 
Even though, yes, Jesus would align more with Shammai in terms of interpretation, this isn't about Shammai. This is about the word of God. The Lord God says, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery. And yet, in the midst of that statement, there is an exception. There is an exception. What is that exception? Look at your text. It's right there in verse 9. Except for immorality. The NASB renders this immorality. The NIV renders this sexual immorality. What's interesting about this word here, immorality, is that Jesus doesn't use, or at least Matthew doesn't record, the standard Greek word for adultery, which would be moikao, adultery. Rather, he uses the word pornea, which the King James renders as fornication. In the sense of this word, it's broader than adultery only. We have it in our heads that it has to only be adultery and that's it, but the Bible actually broadens it wider than adultery. In the context, pornea refers to a bevy of sexual sins. It's meant to encompass the broad spectrum of all kinds of immorality that would include, but not be limited to, certainly adultery, which is unauthorized sex by a married person, fornication, which is unauthorized sex in general, but usually it's unmarried people who are coming together. It also includes debauchery, nudity that's inappropriate, incest, acts of perversion, pornography, molestation, illicit behavior, and so on. In fact, some scholars have understood the broadness of this term that they render this word, they translate it, marital unfaithfulness, and the context is really with regard to sexuality. If you're unfaithful to your spouse in any kind of sexual way, that is, according to this, grounds why there is an exception at all. But again, I want to bring us back to the context. The idea here is that if you divorce and remarry for any cause other at all, any cause at all, other than, adultery, other than immorality, it is adultery. That's what Jesus says. However, if sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness takes place, here is the provision. Then the innocent spouse who divorces their sinning partner, they are acting lawfully, and they are not committing adultery if they go and find someone else. But why does Jesus give this exception? Well, I believe it's this. Because sexual sin is in a category all its own. It's not to say that sexual immorality is a worse sin. I would argue many things are worse than sexual immorality. Murder is certainly worse. But the idea here is that it's a wholly different sin. It's a whole category different. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Then he says this, For every other sin a man commits outside of his body. You steal money, that's outside your body, you can pay it back. You, you cuss somebody out, that's outside of your body, you can go and deal with that. But then he says, but the immoral man sins against his own body. When you bring sexual immorality into a marriage, it is a defilement of the worst kind. A bruise can heal. A harsh word can be forgiven. But sexual immorality, it destroys a trust in a way that no other sin really does. It violates the one flesh union. It defiles the marriage bed. And so God, in his mercy, and God understands the egregious and soul-crushing nature of sexual sin. He permits the spouse to leave the marriage that has been defiled and find a spouse who will honor their physical union. But again, 
immorality does not mandate divorce. Repentance can take place even if you have committed sexual sin against your spouse. There is forgiveness is possible. Restoration is possible. And there are countless examples through the course of human history where a Christian man or a Christian woman has sinned in such a way, have repented of their sins, their spouse takes them back and forgives, and they're able to work through it, and they can restore their relationship. It is possible, my friends. A wife can forgive her husband who is repentant with godly sorrow. She can forgive, and with the Lord's help, they can rebuild the marriage. It's not easy, but it is possible. However, there are times when it is not possible, where a spouse is unrepentant, where their heart is just too hardened, where there simply is no hope. Early on in ministry, I was visited by a woman whose husband had committed adultery four times with four different women. She was devastated, and I will never forget it as long as I live. She sobbed bitterly in my living room. It, was, it nearly ruined her. But what was amazing, and my wife and I sat and counseled her, but the question to me was not, am I allowed to divorce him? She knew she had biblical grounds. She knew it. Her question to me was, how do I forgive him? And so eventually the husband agreed to marital counseling. He apologized. He promised to be faithful. He even signed a covenant And then she discovered that he had been with four more women. And not just girlfriends, but prostitutes. Finally, she reached her limit and she filed for divorce. And when it was all said and done, he ended up admitting admitting to cheating on her with 15 different women. And no repentance. So what do you do at that point? That is why the Lord grants divorce. So that a spouse doesn't have to be trapped in a debauched marriage. It's a mercy of God. And so, if forgiveness and restoration are not possible, if it's not possible, God grants divorce for sexual sins. Now some, again, in the course of history have, and I've read this last couple weeks, and we're going to talk about this more next week, we've read a lot of information. The elders and I have been working on this problem, this textual issue Lots of views on this. And some have said that there's never, ever allowed any reason for divorce. But I believe the biblical weight is very strong, that there, is, there are provisions. And this is one of them. However, the Lord Jesus does not give the final word on divorce here. This is not the final word. He, in this context, is answering the Pharisees, who again, they want to legalize their serial adultery. That's why he answers the way he does. But, as we'll see next week, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has more to say to us about divorce through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. And so we will spend more time talking about that next week. It's not over, my friends. We're going to talk more about it. But my prayer, my sincere prayer, and this is what kept me up for nights and nights and nights, is that I I want to make sure that the elders, and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the elder board because we work through this problem together, I want to make sure that we are clear that we are accurate, that we are only binding conscience where it is biblically mandated, but we're not binding consciences unnecessarily. We want to make sure that this teaching is going to be helpful and vindicating and convicting where it needs to be. And so our, our prayer is that your hearts would be ministered to 
by the Lord through his inerrant word. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. And as we have prayed so many times, Lord, we understand and we know that you, this issue for you is crystal clear. You know the hearts of men and women. You know when a marriage is good and when it's not good, when a divorce is right uh, and lawful and when it is not lawful. You understand the details of every situation. You know the hardness of heart. You know the softening of the heart. Lord, you can soften hearts. You can bring about repentance and reconciliation. So you are the sovereign Lord over all of our marriages, Lord. But Father, we, we wrestle and we struggle Because we don't see what you see. We don't know the depths of depravity in a marriage, in each other's hearts. We don't know how far to go. How many times is enough times to forgive? And at what point do we move on? At what point are we just being hardened ourselves and we could just work a little harder to make the marriage work? How much more do we have to die to ourselves and love our spouse, Lord? Sometimes we have hardness of heart where we look for reasons to to get rid of them and we should be repenting of our hardness and loving them and serving them. Lord, this is such a challenging issue for us. And Lord, because of all the stats we talked about even last week, Lord, this is just so prevalent in our culture. And it is more prevalent in the church than we would like to admit. But Father, we need your help. We want to understand We want to know what you think because in the end, it doesn't matter what we think or feel. It only matters what you think, what you want, your desire, your will for us. If we don't please you, it doesn't matter who we please outside of that. But Lord, we know that you desire unity and oneness and faithfulness and love and steadfastness. You desire obedience, Lord. And so our desire, Father, is to to honor you. But Lord, there are so many times that we sin, and we sin in our marriages. And what is our only hope when we sin? Well, Lord, for the church, and you know this, you've given this to us, this blessed gospel. Our hope is that, yes, we have sinned against the crown of heaven, and yet you the great husband of the church, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the holy one, the righteous one, to give his life as a sacrifice for us, to die on the cross and pay for our sins. And on the cross, you, Lord Jesus, put to death all the transgression, all the condemnation, all the penalty of our sins that were committed. And you gave us forgiveness. You did not divorce us And send us away. No, you, the greater Hosea, you restored us and forgave us and brought us back. And you did so by your own blood. And we, we died to our sin and we were born again in you through your resurrection, Lord. And in you, we have not only the forgiveness of sins for ourselves before heaven, but we also then by the ministry of the Spirit have the capacity to forgive those who have sinned against us. And so, Lord God, with the power of the gospel as our weapon against sin and debauchery, with the weapon against hard-heartedness, Lord, with the power and the great news of the gospel, let us then be forgiving toward our spouses when they hurt us, when they transgress. Let us not be characterized 
as a people of divorce, but let us be characterized as a people of faithfulness. Lord, let that be us. And I would even add, and I'm sure we'll pray more this next week as well, Lord, but if there are those, even in this number, who their divorce was not biblically sanctioned, if they sinned in doing so, that you would grant them repentance. And if they can't be restored back to their original spouse, if that option is gone, Lord, that you would also grant restoration and reconciliation, at least on a relational level, that there would be no bitterness, there'd be no malice, that there would be true forgiveness, that you would heal broken hearts, Lord. This plagues all of society. This plagues all of us on some level. But Lord, would you be our peace, our reconciliation? Would you be the basis of all of our love and forgiveness? We know that you are. We praise you and we thank you for the blessed love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.